Wow, what a perfect, perfect song to uh, introduce uh, the message this morning. Jesus, we just surrender all to you because that is actually like the single most important thing about you as far as your relationship to God is how much have you surrendered to God? That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about surrender today. We're going to talk about authority today. We're going to touch on a, a lot of things. Um, we're in the 16th chapter of Luke, and we'll finish that chapter today. Jeff taught the first section on the, on the steward who was handling his master's money, and um, we continue the theme of uh, looking at God uh, as he gives us uh, his abundance. He gives us uh, finances and provision and monies, but we'll also look at God's authority. And um, I want to, speaking of authority, I want to start off um, there's a Sunday comic strip called Frank and Ernest. I don't know if you've ever seen that comic strip, but in one of the cartoons, uh, Frank and Ernest are standing at the gates of heaven, and also standing there is St. Peter. And he's got a pretty bad scowl on his face. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Ernie is standing there smiling sheepishly, uh, wearing a T-shirt that says in big letters, question authority. <laughs> and Frank bends down and whispers to Ernie, hey, Ernie, if I were you, I'd take your t-shirt off right now and change. <laughs> and we laugh at a, a, a joke like that, but the truth is all of us uh, have uh, struggles and battles with uh, authority. Uh, and we find sometimes authority difficult, especially if the authority isn't a kind, gracious, nice authority, even though God says to us that we're to yield to all authority because, do you know Isaiah says that all authority has been placed there by him? Well, that's a stunning fact. Isaiah says all authority has been placed there by him, but, but you say, well, what about bad authority? God has bad authority there placed because he's got purposes. The people who stretch you, people that I've called grace growers in messages over the years, these people who tax you and, and bring out the worst in you, which is exactly what God wants, right? God wants the worst brought out of you. And so these grace growers, these people that tax you, are literally the most important people in your lives because they're helping you change your character. They're working hard on you even though they don't know it. So anyway, Jesus is always dealing with his authority, starting from the first chapter of Luke all the way through we're looking at Jesus' authority, and we're looking at those who say yes to him, and we're looking at those who say, I don't want your authority. Let me say this, that this issue of authority and God's authority is crucial to you and to me. Because either we're going to do one of two things. We are going to come under God's authority. We're going to yield to God's authority. We're going to walk under God's authority. Or... We are going to reject that authority, and then what happens? We become an authority unto ourselves. Those of you who reject God's authority, you become an authority unto yourselves. So we have two choices this morning. Like the first line of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Wow, that little phrase, thy will be done, like determines so much of life. So we either yield to God's authority or we become 
an authority unto ourselves. We decide what we want to believe. We decide what we think. We pick and choose from the scriptures what we want to pick and choose from. Instead of fully yielding to the full counsel of God and saying yes to God in whatever he says, even if it's difficult, we then become an authority to ourselves by just deciding, I'm just going to do what I like. But you know, life doesn't work so well that way. Life does not work well when you are your, your own authority, when you do what you decide to do. So at noon today, my grandson is playing fall baseball, and he's going to uh, go out and play with his team. And, and if it, say it's the third inning, and the coach says to Dylan, that's the name of my grandson, I want you to play second base, Dylan. But Dylan decides in the dugout that he wants to pitch. So he goes out to the mound instead of second base, but the coach already has the pitcher that he assigned to pitch on the pitcher's mound. And it's just going to be chaos if Dylan and the, and the kid that was supposed to pitch are trying to figure out who's going to pitch. And guess what? That's what happens in life. Chaos, futility, frustration, trying to figure out why aren't things working well takes place when you become your own authority. When you, you know, the old Campus Crusade for Christ, Four Spiritual Law track, they had the little chair, you know, who's going to sit on the throne of your life? That's really, and, and, and it's a battle. Isn't it a battle every day? Galatians calls it the battle between the flesh and the spirit. In Galatians 5, the last half of that chapter. I don't know about you, but I suspect it, because it's the same true about me. Every single day I'm battling, who am I going to yield to? Am I going to yield to the desires of my flesh? Am I going to yield to the will of God? And I battle it every single day. Am I going to choose to do this? Or will I choose to do what God uh, asks me to do? And I don't, I don't successfully, 100% of the time, do what I know God wants me to do. That's the battle of sanctification and of growing up in Christ. So today we're going to look at these two issues that I've just mentioned in my introduction. We're going to look at God's authority, and then we're going to look at this issue of money again. And uh, really, as we discussed uh, last week, the issue is not so much money itself, but the attitude that we hold towards money. And uh, I might preface this by saying that the, most of you have a bowl probably in your bedroom that has a bunch of change in it. The amount of that change in the bowl in your bedroom or in your kitchen or wherever it is constitutes more money than most people make in third world countries in an entire month. So what I want to say when we're talking about riches or wealth, all of us in this room here are wealthy in comparison. So when we're looking at our text today, just don't think, oh, it's that guy. I don't have to worry because I'm, I'm, I'm only making so much money I don't really feel like I'm rich. We are very rich, you guys. Just tag along with me sometimes too. Cambodia or, or, or Thailand, places where there's a lot of poor people, and it's amazing how happy they are. Let me, let me say that. Amazing how happy poor people can be when they just uh, come to grips with what they do have and make the most of it. So, all right, uh, we're going to look at our passage today. We really have, it's really in two sections. Uh, our first, we're looking at chapter 16, uh, verses 14 to 18. Uh, and, this, and, and this is a, uh, actually 14 to 17, 
And this is a section in which we can look at both our themes, the first theme of, of money and the second theme of, of God's authority. So here's our passage. It's a, it's a, it's a, I wrestled. I spent hours wrestling with this, just these four or five verses right here, uh, asking God to help me understand uh, how they all fit together. And I believe God's shown me. So, beginning in verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money scoffed at what Jesus said. What had he said? Well, if you look back at verse 13, he said you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve both. Because you're either going to love one or hate the other. Verse 15, and Jesus replied, you are those who, look, who love to look good before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, a lot of your translations will say, we use the word is an abomination before God. Instead of uh, detestable, detestable is used in the New American Standard, which is the Bible that I use. So the first, our first three verses here, Jesus is talking here about this issue of riches and honor and position. And he's challenging the Pharisees, and he's saying, you know, that which you really prize, which you highly esteem, which is the love of money, which is uh, loving to be seen by men, having the seat of honor at the banquet feast, walking into the marketplace and having everybody greet you, all these things that you think are so cool and so wonderful, God says, they're detestable to me. Wow. God's looking for humility. God's looking for those who will keep themselves low before him. God's looking that our attitude be one of kindness and graciousness, not of extolling and exalting himself. Anybody. And so one of the things for me or for Jeff or all of us that's, who speak up here is that we understand that we are servants of God. We're not looking that ourselves that we would be honored. But Jesus said, you love that to the Pharisees. And he says, that's detestable uh, in the sight of God. Because God, uh, God knows your heart. <laughs> we can't get away with anything because God understands and knows. Now he's going to make a switch here. And he's going to begin to say to them, this is a problem that you're having. The problem you're having is that from the law of Moses, through the prophets, up until John the Baptist, you thought you understood what God was saying. So he says here, beginning in verse 16, until John the Baptist came, the law of Moses and the words of the prophets were your guides. But then the good news of God's kingdom is preached, and many are trying to get in, literally many are trying to force themselves in, is what the language literally says, and those people would be the tax gatherers and the sinners and the poor, the ones that the Pharisees looked down on. And then Jesus, just out of the blue, says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than from one stroke of the law to fail. For instance, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, why did he jump from loving money to the law and prophets and then to an issue of marriage, because the Pharisees had just decided to interpret the law of Moses and what the prophets said 
to just what they felt like it to mean that would be easiest for them. So in their day, even though Moses and the prophets spoke clearly, the Pharisees were permitting, say in marriage, we'll just take this example of the last verse, they were permitting a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. They were, if, if, a, if a, a husband came to a Pharisee and just said, you know, I want to change. I'm not liking my wife anymore. Pharisees would grant the divorce. There were discarded women all over Judea and Sumeria and the northern part of Israel. There were women divorced for no reason at all other than the husband wanted to change. And Jesus is saying to them, you paid no attention to the prophets. You paid no attention to Moses. You paid no attention to John. You're paying no attention to me. And what you do is what you want to do. And so you grant people these easy divorces, but God's law was that divorce was only permissible for adultery. And that's what the original intention was because God loves marriage and God loves husbands and wives staying together. Now, if you've been divorced and remarried, uh, lots of grace for all of you. There's all kinds of reasons and issues, and I understand all of that. But I just want us to understand this, that the Word of God is the Word of God, and it is clear we're to honor it and we're to value what God says. And Jesus is giving the highest value to the words of Moses and to the words of the prophets, and, he's, and likewise, so should we, right? We should give the highest value because this, these words here are the words that will give us life. These are not dead words. This is not like a Wikipedia. This is, this is the living word of God. We hold on to it. It's the, it's the anchor to our souls as far as uh, leading us to Jesus. Okay, so now we're going to go to our main section now. And this might sound blasphemous. <laughs> I don't mean it to, but I told Jeff this morning, this is like a Halloween parable. <laughs> this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It is like spooky. It's a spooky parable, if I could use that word. Now, two weeks ago, when I introduced and taught the, the parable of the uh, prodigal son, I put up on the PowerPoint a picture of the superb Dutch Renaissance painter Rembrandt's uh, rendition of the lost, the prodigal who returns home. Now I have another picture. I have no idea who painted this, but this is the picture of our parable. And you know, I've, when I've done funerals and, and, uh, and when we do the video for a funeral, I'll say, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, this picture is worth a thousand words. This, this, uh, gives us an illustration of the first third or so of our parable. Because you have a rich man sitting there feasting on a table full of food. You have a servant pouring wine for him. You have another servant on the far right who's bringing more food. And then you have a, a third servant behind him who's fanning him or flicking off the insects and flies that are zipping around but who's in the background? In the background, you've got this poor beggar who is languishing there, and there's dogs hovering around him. 
and we'll find out why the dogs are hovering around him in just a minute. So we're going to read, we're going to read the parable. Then I'm going to do something I've rarely done before here in many, many years I've been preaching here. I'm going to teach you what the parable doesn't say because then it will teach you what the parable does say. You'll, you'll get my gist. I've done this before a couple of times. But uh, Gabe, if I could have the text now. Rich man and the beggar, Luke uh, 16, uh, verses 19 to 31. There was a certain rich man clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. As Lazarus languished there, longing to be fed with the scraps from the rich man's table, dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. A lot of your translations will say Abraham's bosom. Then the rich man also dies and was buried. So this is the beginning of our parable. Now it heats up a little bit here next. In Hades... And being in torment, he, the rich man, lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off with Lazarus at his side. May I, may I make mention here that this is, of all the parables that Jesus ever gave, this is the only parable in which somebody is named by name. Abraham, uh, so this, he lifted his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off with Lazarus at his side and the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Well, well I, I'd say I'd be saying that. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. Now he's being comforted and you are suffering. Besides this, a great chasm has been fixed, and one may not pass from one side to the other. Next slide. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let your brothers hear them. And he replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses, if they won't listen to the prophets, neither will they listen to someone sent to them from the dead. By all kinds of analogies and pictures to this parable, but I want to teach you now what this parable is really saying. Because our first inclination would be to think that this parable is a description of heaven and hell. All right? And while hell is real, and of course heaven is real, and it is a place of punishment, and nobody spoke about hell more than Jesus did, this parable is primarily not about heaven and hell. This parable primarily is about riches and authority. This is how I introduced the passage. 
Now what I'm, what I'm going to do now is something I have rarely done before, which is to teach you what the parable is not saying so you can understand what it is saying, all right? So I've got uh, uh, a little section here called Understanding This Parable. And this is a great Bible lesson for you because those of you who read your Bible, if you have some understanding of how to interpret your Bible, it will help you immensely when you try to understand what you read, especially in challenging and difficult text. So Jeff and I have been to seminary. When you go to seminary, you take these classes on interpretation, homiletics, and all of this, and you learn about what's called context. So when you interpret scripture, number one, it needs to be done so in context. Context means the focus of the preceding verses or the focus of the chapter. And right here in this parable in the beginning, the focus and the, and the uh, main idea is money, and along with authority, which we'll get to uh, in a few, few more uh, mentions down uh, on my list. So the, the context of this passage is about a rich man and his money, all right? Secondly, Jesus is emphasizing our attitude toward money. And I'm asking you these questions now. Are you, or am I, are we selfish or are we generous with, our, with what we have? And you may say, well, I don't have too much. But you know, there's a story about a widow who had one cent. And she went and put it into the treasury. And there were people who put in lots of other money besides her. And Jesus said, you know, see that little old woman there who put in the one cent? She put in all that she had, and she put in more than all the rest. So, are you selfish or generous? Or am I greedy? Or do I or you, do we give to the less fortunate? Now, as a church, I guess I could boast and say, we have such a strong thrust of missions that we are reaching out to the poor all the time, so I can boast about our church. You know, we go to most places in the world at one time or another, and we reach out to the poor. So Sam, Pastor Sam, has already 60-plus people signed up to go to the Dominican Republic in February just to reach out to the poor. Then we're going to go to Thailand in March and reach out to many, uh, to many uh, mostly kids who are refugees fleeing from the military violence in Myanmar that we've rented a house and we're taking care of kids there. Does the love of money control us? Does the love of money control us? I don't know what that word favor is doing down there, but that's all right. Uh, uh, okay, I'll just prophesy favor on everybody. <laughs> that might be a word from God. How's that? Yeah, I do. I take these little things here like, Hey, yeah, favor. We'll take it, God. If, did the Holy Spirit put that up there? I think he did. We'll just take all the favor we can get. I'm serious. Like, I'll take favor in this day and age right now. Yeah, we all could use a little favor. So go back to number two again, uh, Nan. So does the love of money control us? Not money, but the love of money control us. Now, you and I read in the Old Testament over and over and over about how God 
disdained his people for their idol worship. But those idols were made out of clay and, and wood and stone. And we go, oh, wow, well, we, 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 we don't have any idols in our life. I'm telling you, the love of money is an idol. If you love money too much, but what, what is an idol? An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Anything that takes more of you, more of your heart, more of your affections, more of your love than does God. I battled with idolatry all my life. Stuff that encroaches into the time that I need to give to God, like sports. There's, there's one that I, I can battle with and go, Sports becomes too important to me sometimes, especially when my kids were growing up. I was spending like hours every week, you know, coaching and going to games and traveling teams and all this and that. So an idol isn't just a car figure, folks. An idol can be an attitude of something that we love more than we love God. It can be a relationship. It can be a person. It can be all kinds of stuff. All right, number three. So in this parable, there's not one word said about faith in this word. Uh, Mark Ellis, would you turn to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and would you stand up and read that for me in just a second? Nothing in this parable is said about faith or about trusting God. In fact, God is not even mentioned in the parable because it's a story. I, I, I understand that. But if you're looking for the fact that the rich man's in hell, it's not, it has nothing to do uh, with his faith. So, Mark, if you could stand and read Ephesians 2, uh, 8, and 9 for me. This is what faith produces. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, uh, not as a result of works, so that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in so how do we get to heaven? He just read the verse. We are saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not by anything that we've done. So this rich man is not in Hades or whatever place this is because of, of uh, a lack of faith. We don't know anything about that in his life at all. He probably had no faith. But the only way that you are in heaven is that you place your faith in Christ. Now, while this parable, you cannot say this is literally hell in the parable, hell does exist, and it is a place of suffering. And if there's one person here today, this morning, and you have never done what Mark just read, you've never trusted Christ, believed in him, that you could be saved simply by saying yes to God, I believe Jesus, what you've done for me, you've died for my sins, you've rose again, and I want to ask you into my life, and I want to be sure where I'm going, because this message is about where might you be going after you live here. While the parable may not be exactly about hell, it certainly raises the question about hell, and it certainly challenges us. If you want to know where you're going to go after you die, you can know for certain. I never worry about what's going to happen when I breathe my last. Because in 1971, in the summer of 1971, I bowed my, my head and I asked Jesus into my heart and I asked him to forgive my sins. And I said, Jesus, I'm going to give you my life and I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. 
and I've not never looked back. I haven't been perfect. I failed here and there, but I gave him my life in 1971. And I've never looked back, and I know where I'm going. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, the scriptures tell us, and that joy was you. You were his joy. I was his joy that he could have us with him in eternity. And if you're here this morning, we have a packed house, and you've never received Jesus into your life, I encourage you to do it even right now. Bow your head and just say softly to God, Lord, I want you to come into my life. I believe you've died for my sins. And I want to be born again. And I want to know that I'm going to go to heaven. And this is a good morning for them. This table right here, this table represents why you would be going to heaven if you pray that prayer. Because his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Hallelujah. Can I get a hallelujah for that? Can I get a little louder hallelujah for that? Yeah, that's what I say. Can you imagine not going to heaven? All right. Number four. The parable ends uh, focusing on uh, Scripture's authority, uh, where, the, uh, where, La where Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then Abraham says, that they don't, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So the message of Jesus and him rising from the dead is the authority of the word of God of the scriptures. And either men and women are going to believe it or they're going to do what the Pharisees did. They're going to scoff at it. Don't scoff at it if you're here this morning. If you've been wondering, if you've been thinking about maybe I should become a Christian, do it. Do it. Just say, Lord, open my heart. All right, uh, number five. Uh, Jesus is, and I mentioned this earlier a little bit, Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees they are not favored by God because of their position, wealth, riches, and honor. is not a sign necessarily of God's favor. So, like whatever your position in life may be, we want to be careful that we're not Pharisees and say, oh, look how good God's treating me, but not treating that person so good. It's got nothing to do with it. God, does, it, God is not, does not play favorites. God is not like us. God does not qualify people. He does not set this person up here in one place and put you down there in another because he likes this person better. God's not like us at all. So, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you are not better than anybody else. Number six. Now this gets to some theology now, and I'm going uh, to teach you some theology about a death. Okay? Number six. This is important. When you die, you, your body does not go into eternity. Only your spirit goes into eternity. Okay? That's important because the parable said his body... The rich man's body went, went into Hades. But when we die, and when anybody dies, your body stays here on the earth. Whether it's buried, like I've done like, this is insane. I've done, I don't know, by the time the year's over, I will have done 15 memorials since August. It's crazy. But everybody, whether they were cremated, whether they were buried, whatever they were, your body stays here in your spirit, to be absent from the body, says 2 Corinthians 5, 
is to be present with the Lord. This is what happens when you die. Have you ever wondered, what happens when I die? You breathe your last, and angels are going to escort your spirit to heaven. I, I watched angels. I watched my mom take her last breath, and I felt angels escort my mom's spirit to heaven. I did. Your body is raised at the general resurrection of the dead, uh, and it's mentioned in a number of places, but the most famous is, is in um, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, in which, just let me I'll read one verse, not the whole section there. It says, uh, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive will come with them. So if you've ever wondered what happens when I die, your spirit goes off into eternity, your body stays here until the general resurrection. Okay, number seven. In relation to this parable, nowhere else in Scripture is heaven ever referred to as Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. Okay? It doesn't mean there's not a picture of it, but nowhere else is it ever referred to. Number eight, people in hell cannot speak to people in heaven. Okay? I want you to know that. I mean, how would you like it if you were in heaven and you had a loved one in hell and you could talk to them? It's not the way it works, folks. This is a parable. This is a story. Okay? Nobody in hell can back. Nobody in hell can speak to someone in heaven. Is that how you spell vice versa? No. <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to spell it. I just like winged it. So, <laughs> visa. I didn't want to say visa. <laughs> that put down master charge. But anyway, so you can't communicate. From heaven to hell, it just doesn't work. Okay, next one. The lost are punished at the end of the age, not when they die. If someone rejects Christ, they don't immediately go into judgment and into an eternity away from God. That's not what happens. They go into a waiting place of just waiting until the, until the judgments of, of God come which are recorded in various places in the New Testament, but especially in the book of Revelation. So, you are punished at the end of the age, or you are rewarded at the end of the age. Not right away. So I'm hoping I'm giving you a feeling of what takes place after death. And number 10, I think, is really important, okay? Being rich does not mean you're likely to go to hell, all right? And being poor doesn't mean you're likely to go to heaven either. You go to heaven based on faith in Christ and that alone. David and Solomon, they were rather rich. Abraham was rich. We're talking about Abraham as being a picture of heaven. But being rich does not mean that you're going to go to hell. But being rich does give you a responsibility with what God's blessed you with that you share what you have, that you share what you have and reach out to the poor, that you are cognizant you know, of people less fortunate than you, that, or like in giving to the church, the church is reaching out to the poor and there's ways that you can, you know, like maybe helping uh, serve uh, the homeless at Thanksgiving, things like this, doing anything you can to share your, your, what you, God's given you. 
And then being poor, well, I've known some really rasty, gnarly poor people. And I don't think they're going to go to heaven. I mean, just the way they act, I've known some really bad poor people. Some really tough poor people, some really cantankerous poor people who are not very nice. Well, I'm no judge of anybody. But I just want to make the point, being rich doesn't mean that's a negative, and being poor doesn't mean that's a positive. What's really important is, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? That's what's really important. Are you going to yield your life to him and his authority? Or are you going to just go your own way? All right, what I want to do is just leave you with a couple of things. I don't have it on the PowerPoint. A couple of reminders just to close, and then Jeff's going to come up, and we're going to have communion. But I hope this has helped you a little bit in understanding a parable that's a little tough to look at, but also what really gets you uh, into heaven. Uh, five things I want you to remember. The first thing is uh, be careful that you don't love money too much. That's the first thing I want to t uh, end my message with. Be careful that money is not an idol in your life. Secondly, be fabulously generous. Be generous beyond what you think you should be because God loves people who give and who are generous. Number three, you have one life to live. As I studied this parable, I was thinking about one life to live. Let's live it for God. Let's not waste it like the rich man, eating sumptuously with a bunch of servants, just hanging out and putting on a bunch of weight. <laughs> well, I'll give a sit there and eat chicken. My wife just said something. I'm not even going to uh, ask her what she said because it won't, it won't be, it'll be interesting. <laughs> All right. Um, four, realize there is a day of judgment coming. That's the fourth one. And then five, what I've just finished with. Trust Christ so you can know where you're going to be going when you die. Amen.